no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Constant. It is Wednesday, July 7th, also known as the day that New York City has a presumed new mayor coming. Uh, as of this morning, Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, has been named the presumptive mayor of New York City. That being said, because there is a general election, uh, but New York Registered voters are overwhelmingly Democrats uh, compared to Republicans and independents. And it is very, very likely that the next mayor of New York will be Eric Adams. He came up one point above. This is after uh, most of the absentee ballots were finally cast after quite a bit of dysfunction over at the New York City Board of Elections. He came up one point above. Catherine Garcia, who is the sanitations department, uh, was the former head of the sanitations department in New York City. Big surprise for a lot of folks that she did so well. Uh, really stood out after the New York Times endorsed her. She was in you know several places behind Eric Adams and Andrew Yang um, and others, including Scott Stringer, until that endorsement by the New York Times. It's amazing. Uh, she trailed him by about 9,000 votes in the final round of ranked choice voting. As you guys know, ranked choice voting, it's this the first time New York City had ranked choice voting. And it was quite a debacle. <laughs> to say the least, because the New York City Board of Elections, which has been uh, full of, of, of nepotism and minor corruption and no-show jobs and friends of friends and family members of family members of elected officials, uh, they have ever received criticism from pretty much every single faction of New York politics and beyond. People have called for the New York City Board of Elections to be gutted. Uh, some say it's just the top that has the problems. It is not uh, the workers at the New York City Board of Elections. But one thing is really clear, they were not ready for ranked choice voting. And they're not usually ready for any elections. So on July 6th, that is uh, last night, the ranked choice final round tabulation showed Eric Adams at 50.5% and Catherine Garcia at 49.5%. On election night, with first place votes only, Eric Adams was at 31.66%. Maya Wiley was at 22.22%. Catherine Garcia was at 19.48%. Andrew Yang at 11.66%. Scott Stringer, who is the city's controller, the only person in the race to hold citywide office, was at 5.03%. Diane Morales was at 2.78%. Ray McGuire, former head of Citibank, 2.31%. Sean Donovan, the former housing secretary, was at 2.16%. And Paperboy Prince was at 0.43%, Art Chang 0.73. Those are pretty much uh, all of, I mean, there's a few more uh, to go on. That was from election night compared to the final tabulation. So there you have it. New York City has a new mayor. For others, I mean, I think that that people are trying to keep up, you know, who are outside of New York City to keep up with what's happening here. Um, there were a few other uh, announcements that came in because, of course, they had to do all the citywide races and the, the city council races on the same day. You know, some surprises, some not so much, but a big, big, big night for the WFP. 
um, big night, big couple of weeks, I should say, for the WFP, the uh, borough president's race has come in and for different borough presidents um, in Brooklyn, for instance, Antonio Reynoso, who was endorsed by WFP, got 28.16% above Joanne Simon, a council member at 17.61%. Robert Carnegie, who's also a council member at 19.15%. Uh, and then a few others, um, it was a very crowded field. And that was with 96.85% of the scanners reporting. In Manhattan, uh, Mark Levine came in at 53.7% above Brad Holman. So this is, you know, it's, I think people are a little, they weren't surprised, um, but the, you know, the, the rank choice turned out to be a little bit different because it was much tighter, a little bit tighter, at least I should say, uh, looking at the election night results. But it, you know, turns out that for the most part, most of those who, with exception to Queens, I'm looking at the, the results right now, exception to Queens, most of the winners ended up making it as into the first place um, on the first round of voting. I don't see any standout as I'm looking at the numbers right now, any difference. Everybody who came in first on election night came in first uh as the ranked choice went in, which is what many people have been saying. Does ranked choice voting really create a scenario in which uh, the underdog can win? And I think in states like Maine and, and states that have open primaries, it is much easier to make that argument. I think in cities like New York City, where it's low turnout, it very much depends on machines um, organizing for you, unions organizing for you, neighborhoods and endorsements. It might be a little bit more of a horse race uh, battle. This is what we're going to have to figure out in the weeks to come, the months to come, the years to come as we analyze this data. Of course, you know, it does help that there was matching funds of eight to one if somebody opted in. So that does make the playing field a little bit easier. It's, it's how somebody like a Ray McGuire, uh, the former head of Citibank or Sean Donovan, who comes from a very wealthy family, how they, you know, they didn't do so well because others were able to compete with the matching funds, including Catherine Garcia. So it's it's definitely an interesting scenario. It's one for a political scientist to, to delve into and really assess. Uh, we'll have many weeks to discuss what kind of mayor Eric Adams will be. Just a reminder, folks, he is a former uh, police policeman, um, an officer in New York City. He joined the police force after thinking that he could reform the police force. He did push forward many reforms or, or, or argued for many reforms, I should say, advocated for them uh, within the police force and afterwards, maybe not to our liking, but this is because as a child, as a teenager, he was beaten by cops with his brother. So it definitely has shaped the way he sees the world. He is tied with real estate and big business as most New York politicians have been maybe until recently uh, for those who wanted to appear to be more progressive. But I don't think anybody who ran for mayor Every single person who ran for mayor supported Hillary Clinton. Let's just put that in perspective, including those who are on the progressive side. Um, actually, quite a few of them on the progressive side criticized Bernie Sanders. So is this a progressive era in New York? I think we're seeing that more at the city council level. I think we're seeing that more at the local level. I think we're seeing that more in the state Senate and even in the assembly. But we still have a lot of work to do. I think that is what is important, is that Eric Adams showed, showed us, and this election showed us, that we as progressives have a lot of work 
to do. It's making sure that those who are running as progressives are really living up to being progressives, not just changing shapes and forms in time for an election that carves out a lane for them to be the progressive candidate. Was it? What is it going to take for us to get a true progressive candidate in office at the mayor level? Uh, are we going to be looking back in a couple of years and thinking to ourselves, maybe, maybe, maybe Mayor de Blasio wasn't so bad. All right. We have a great show today. As you guys know, we have a two hour show. We are now doing the show Wednesdays and Fridays, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. You're going to get longer interviews. You're going to get uh, uh, more content at once. Same amount of content we've been offering from the get go, but it's very exciting for us. And if you didn't know, I am actually in Greece right now. Um, we're going to be covering a conference next week with the committee's own Arun Chowdhury. We are going to be in the same place at the conference talking about leftist politics globally. I was super excited to do this. Uh, if Wi-Fi works, <laughs> that is always the question when you're traveling. But stick around. We have Luke Savage up first. He's going to be talking about how Hillary Clinton and her machine is taking on Nina Turner in Ohio and why they don't want Nina to win. I don't think we're surprised by this, but uh, it is important to discuss. And then later we have Jordan Zacharin who will be talking about the New York City election results, what it means. We're gonna delve in a little bit more. And then later on after that, we are going to do our panel with Natalie Schur and Napoleon the Legend. So we'll be right back after this brief little break with Luke Savage. Right. Luke Savage is, of course, a staff writer over at Jacobin, and he is the host of Michael and Us. He has a piece out <laughs> as of yesterday uh, in Jacobin titled, Hillary Clinton Wants Nina Turner to Lose. And as I said during your little break, Luke, it's the little machine that could. <laughs> this machine won't die. <laughs> Why? 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 I mean, let's just start with this, because I'm... <sighs> They, her record is like not great. So, does she, is it is it for fundraising? Is it to like what is the signaling? Like it's not it doesn't work. Does she really think it works, Hillary? I, I think Hillary Clinton's own intervention in the race, for what it's worth, is is perfectly uh, sincere in a sense. I mean, I think that you know the her endorsement quickly got you know I think most people received it. Um, I think rightly as kind of a you know, as a as a personal intervention, you know, she's she's intervened in these cases before, I think, where you have a kind of, you know, Sanders endorsed candidate. And here the personal dynamics are pretty difficult to uh, to overlook. Um, but, you know, it's ironic that the piece was called uh, Hillary Clinton wants Nina Turner to lose because the catalyst uh, uh, for me writing it was really, um, you know, not just Hillary Clinton uh, endorsing uh, Nina Turner's opponent, Chantel Brown. Um, but Jim Clyburn jumping in as well, because I think that's what took this from, you know, a kind of 2016 relitigation type thing to something that I think in many ways has dynamics uh, similar to the the primary between uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Um, but actually, you know, uh, has has dynamics at play that go beyond the personal. So that's kind of what the piece is exploring. Well, I mean, when I saw that Jim Clyburn endorsed, I immediately thought, you know, all politics is local. I mean, especially in these special elections, you know, how many people know who their own Congress member is, let alone Jim Clyburn? But simultaneously, it does create a dynamic in which maybe Chantal Brown can raise some more money uh, so that she can close it out or get more press. 
Um, and then suddenly someone like a Hillary Clinton can come in and then Chantal Brown can do ads with her and Hillary Clinton or, you know, you know how it rolls. It's not necessarily because Jim Clyburn can move votes in Ohio. It's more that he can move people and power money into Chantal Brown's race. Is there any indication that that's what's happening with Chantal Brown, that there's this, uh, you know, there's, there's, I mean, we know that Nina Turner was able to raise some money off of it, but does it seem like Chantal Brown has been able to do so? Yeah, well, in fact, Turner reportedly raised a hundred grand after the Hillary Clinton endorsement, and apparently uh, another hundred grand after the Clyburn endorsement. So yeah, she's being she's she's been able to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think your your assessment of uh, kind of Clyburn's role is uh, is exactly right. Um, you know, and I think that uh, you know if you look at the uh, reporting that Julia Rock and and David Sirota at the Daily Poster did on this. Um, you know, you can I mean, it's not it's not very hard to uh, connect the dots and see that, you know, Clyburn, who is a leading recipient um, or as of 2018, he was the leading recipient of pharmaceutical uh, donations for many or you know, donations from the pharmaceutical industry of any any member of Congress, um, a title that uh, or distinction that I think he still holds to this day, although I could be wrong about that. Um but, uh, you know, Turner's embrace of Medicare for all legislation, um, which, you know, she's she's run on the idea pretty, pretty strongly. Um, and, you know, Brown, uh, I think it was a day after the uh, the Clyburn endorsement, uh, held a fundraiser with, you know, the uh, there was a registered lobbyist for the pharmaceutical research and manufacturers, uh, manufacturers of America. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, which is which is involved in a nationwide campaign. Uh, against Medicare for all, um, you know, this is the kind of money that you're able to tap when you are a Democratic candidate who's, you know, standing against somebody um, who's campaigning on Medicare for all. This is this is kind of where the the money uh, the money goes and how the machinery kind of swings uh, when when that's the case. And uh, you know, I think it's it's so reminiscent, and I'm sure it reminds you as well of uh, the dynamic we saw in, in 2016, where kind of on the surface there were all these. You know, very personal kind of arguments. And, and there was kind of the meta theatrics of the you know debates between Clinton and Sanders and stuff. But, you know, a lot of us understood that what was really going on was that the much of the machinery that makes up the Democratic Party on a day to day basis was kind of swinging against uh, the candidate who, uh, you know, was uh, was running against it, you know, um, which uh, Turner yeah. is very much doing uh, as as Sanders did uh, did twice, and so I think that's really more what we're seeing here. There is a re- re- there is a relitigation of 2016, um, but it's it's not quite the relitigation uh, people think uh, exactly because I don't think Hillary Clinton's endorsement. I don't think Hillary Clinton uh, her endorsement probably matters all that much to the people of you know Northeastern Ohio. Um, I'm looking at um, this endorsement list right now. And, you know, of the endorsements, uh, Chantal Brown, of course, Secretary Hillary Clinton, you've got uh, some congressional members from different parts of the country. Okay, fine. Maryland, Illinois, New Jersey, Florida, Louisiana, uh, California. Okay, here we go. Joyce Beatty from Ohio, who is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Fascinating. Okay, that's that's one Ohio endorsement. You have two state state reps, uh, a couple of county executives and former mayors and former prosecutors. But for the most part, there aren't that many local endorsements. Um, Richard Cordray, of course, is former Consumer Financial Production Bureau, uh, but also, you know, was the Ohio State Treasurer, Treasurer and Attorney General. But for the most part, it, has, it hasn't doesn't seem to be overwhelmingly local. Um, 
but there's the but. Okay. I'm looking here at Chantel Brown's endorsements and I see local unions. Mm-hmm. And this is what seems like it could make a difference compared to, you know, Senator Turner definitely has some big endorsements, obviously, Bernie Sanders and Markey, the squad, Cory Bush, Mondaire Jones, Jamal Bowman, basically everybody who's, who's progressive in Congress and a few others. But, 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 but the former chair of the Democratic Party in Ohio, she has uh, current state senators, the minority leader. I mean, she really does seem to have several local endorsements for for electeds and unions and and the newspaper, The Plain Dealer. This makes a huge I mean, this kind of stuff moves elections. Look at New York City. Like we people love to say endorsements don't matter. Yeah, I think endorsements, um, you know, they they can actually carry great weight and they're they're also, you know, depending on the source, and they're also very indicative of where all kinds of things are moving, both locally and nationally. Um, I do think the national dynamic in the race is a pretty striking one. And again, this is where the kind of 2016, uh, I mean, this is where I was getting flashbacks to 2016. Um, you know, I think the race is interesting, not only because it um, you know, has these obvious parallels to 2016, but because it highlights the dynamic that 2016, I feel like really brought to light for people, um, you know, going forward. It's it's one that a lot of people who I think were uh, perhaps radicalized by the 2016 primaries have really taken to heart. And, you know, um, it's, you know, what you're seeing is basically a progressive candidate uh, running on, you know, a very popular, I mean, among other things, a very popular uh, agenda item, uh, Medicare for all. This is not just popular nationally. It's actually, according to local polling, very popular in the district. Uh, as Sirota and Rock pointed out in their piece for the Daily Poster, this is a district that has sent, uh, you know, Democrats to Washington for the better part of 30 years who support single payer legislation. You know, Turner is, uh, you know, she's not trying to, she's not imposing some, uh, you know, uh, chaotic or marginal kind of issue on, uh, you know, the, the voters of the Ohio 11th, this is a, you know, it's a very popular uh, policy uh, with, with uh, you know, with this electorate. Um, and, you know, wh- what we're seeing is the machinery, of the Democratic Party swinging to, uh, you know, impose a, you know, candidate, you know, a more conservative candidate. Um, and, you know, this, I feel like, you know, could anything better represent the kind of circular logic that, you um, you know, we're, we're often subjected to in, in relation to this stuff. Um, you know, a lot of Democrats are not, they're not always comfortable, you know, Hillary Clinton kind of wavered back and forth on this, but they're not always comfortable directly attacking the policies that they oppose, right? Often they have to invent these kind of, um, you know, meta reasons, these kind of secondary reasons, you know, uh, for why something can't happen. You know, so, it, you know, uh, the problem with Medicare for all is, well, that it would be great, but you could never get it through Congress or, or something like that. You know, you often you often hear that kind of stuff. And Chantel Brown, for what it's worth, uh, has taken a very confusing position on on the issue. She said um, that she wouldn't vote against it uh, if it got to the floor. But then she, uh, you know, if, if she was elected and it got to the floor of the House. But, uh, you know, she's also. Uh, she's also said she's you know against it because it would take away people's private insurance. Um, and so once again, you know, uh, you know, we have this dynamic where, you know, uh, Democratic uh, centrists and, and establishment figures kind of say that, that things like Medicare for all aren't popular. You know, they, they don't get they won't get the votes in Congress, that kind of thing. Um, but then they actively work to impose, uh, 
you know, more conservative candidates on, uh, well, on all districts, but districts like this in particular. The Ohio 11th is not a conservative district. In fact, um, according to one uh, study I found, it's the, uh, you know, it's number 21, ranks number 21 on the list of most Democratic districts, of all, of all Democratic districts. Um, it's in terms of, uh, you know, voter preference, it's it's uh, D plus 32. It voted for Hillary Clinton um, for more, more than 80 percent in 2016. So this is a solidly, uh, solidly Democratic district. Um, and there's just, you know, there's simply no, you know, it's one where people support Medicare for all. There's simply no reason um, to have a more conservative candidate there um, unless you uh, unless your primary uh, objective is to make sure that um, an issue like Medicare for all doesn't get uh, more visibility and doesn't get more votes in Congress. OK, so. This is a D plus 32 district. This is a or D plus 30 something district. It's an extremely Democratic district, but it's also a district that the Democratic machine more or less has been operating in for a long time. So being a very blue district doesn't necessarily always mean it's the most progressive or they may value the, the progressive items on the agenda like may support Medicare for all. They may support, uh, you know, fully funding public schools, but might align more with the institutional Democrats out of just familiarity or, you know, many other issues. And you see this in New York all the time too. You know, it's kind of the pathway for Eric Adams. Um, so is that, how do we see those dynamics playing out with Senator? I mean, she's also been elected before, so she has an EMIB locally as well. How do we see this playing out? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's exactly that. I mean, I think um, in many ways, the dynamics uh, you see in places like California, uh, New York, or in a district like this, which, you know, as we've said, is an extremely blue district, kind of tells you where, I mean, it sort of gives lie to a lot of the arguments you hear um, from kind of centrist Democrats, establishment Democrats, about how the reason that they can't do things uh, is because of Republican obstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, and you know, that obviously applies in this dri- district. It applies in, um, you know, heavily in, in somewhere like New York, where um, I mean, there were Democratic, uh, solid Democratic majorities. And what did Andrew Cuomo do? He formed a special caucus. So, with, you know, with Republicans, they could pass, you know, Republican Nothing. budgets. And no, nobody, <laughs> nobody makes, no, nobody makes, uh, you know, uh, powerful Democrats, you know, do this stuff. They do it because a lot of the machinery in which they're embedded uh, wants them to do this. And because many of them, uh, you know, want, uh, want, want to do this stuff as well. So there's a really uh, great chapter in Thomas Frank's book, um, uh, Listen Liberal, where he talks about the blue state model. And uh, the the Ohio 11th special election is a good example of the blue state model in action. I mean, you know, you can uh, you can have a solidly blue uh, district, but the machinery will still work to contain the, you know, uh, progressive elements within that district. It will still tr- it will still work uh, to try to get a more conservative candidate, even though there's uh, you know, I mean, the, there's there's no kind of electability argument or anything around, you know, a, a district that's that's this solidly Democrat. Um, but they'll still they'll still work to do that, uh, you know, anyway. Um, and you see this play out again and again in California, New York, wherever. I mean, who can forget, um, you know, uh, some of Hillary Clinton's other endorsements, uh, you know, Elliot Engel being you know over over Jamal Bowman. Uh, I believe I don't think I'm making this up. Perhaps you can correct me, but I believe she also endorsed Joe Crowley over over AOC. Um, I assume nobody even cared. I mean, from from what I recall, it wasn't it was never considered to be any sort of like serious, 
race for him. He didn't even show up to the debates. He wasn't even in district. I mean, I mean, I live right there. Like people were like, who? Um, so it's, she found a, you know, she, she found somebody, but, 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 you know, this is not a district in which the candidate is going to be sleeping. I mean, um, so I'm curious because like it, it mean, they see Nina coming. Um, and you know, not to mention like they know Nina because Senator Turner was part of the democratic party when she was in office and she was on ready for Hillary and, you know, had a big kind of separation from them. Um, and then went to, to Bernie, but, I think what I'm really curious about with this race, and there's there's several months um, from now until then, is why is it that knowing very well that that Senator Nina Turner is from that district, and knowing very well the dynamics, and I served on a commission with these both Senator Turner and Marsha Fudge, knowing very well that um, Marsha Fudge <laughs> could be vacating this. Why did why did Joe Biden appoint Marsha Fudge to be? Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. I mean, it just seems like it's a very odd scenario. <laughs> I I actually I don't have any theories on that uh, on that score. Really, I don't know. Uh, I don't know a great deal about Marsha Fudge, but um, I, I mean, for what it's worth, I don't get the sense that the uh, Democrats have been particularly organized in their effort to stop Turner. It seems like they've it's kind of been a bit of a late uh, a late scramble. And I mean, the only poll we've seen of the race had her solidly ahead, although I think it was a poll commissioned by her campaign. So we'll, uh, we'll have to see. Yeah. And it's, it's important to mention that I'm glad you mentioned it because we, the, the polls can sometimes be self-fulfilling prophecies if they're not necessarily, if they're done too early, if they're, there's lots of different factors. So, but listen, they're, they're calling in the, 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 the big guns, I guess you could say, and are scared, um, about what could potentially happen. Uh, but simultaneously, you know, this is this is a. I think the race is probably tighter with with so much union support. So it's a special election. You never know. Right. That's the the key part here. Do you have any sense of um, how these districts have performed or other races have performed when there has been a special election that kind of overlap with the district in terms of modeling? Has anybody given you any information on that? On, on the polling and how accurate it is? No, no, no. So when there's a special election, oftentimes, you know, it doesn't mean that there's been one in that district for that race, but there are likely other elections that are similar where you can kind of overlap the data and the modeling and say like, okay, well, we have a sense that this percentage of people will turn out for the special election based on previous special elections in this district for other seats added to mm-hmm. off years, et cetera. Like there's kind of all this modeling that they do. Has anybody discussed that? Have you heard any? I I was un, unable to find uh, much polling on it. Um, so, uh, so I, I'm really not sure. I think you're right that it's probably tighter than that initial poll uh, suggested, but I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen any kind of comparative studies or anything like that. So I think mostly what we have to go on uh, is the fact that, you know, Turner clearly had, a big lead and a lot of momentum. And she's clearly got, I mean, I think her fundraising is pretty indicative of the momentum that she does have, but because there's been this kind of late swing by the democratic machinery, both nationally and locally, I think you're right. It probably is closer um, than, than, you know, uh, you know, I don't think Turner's going to win by 40 points or something like that, but um, we'll have to wait and see. It's, it's the election is on uh, August 3rd. It's a special election. And of course it goes, she goes on to, to run for the general, whoever wins will go on to the general election. Uh, but in a, like, as you said, a very democratic district, Luke, super interesting. Um, thanks to writing this piece. We need to use this as a model because this is their game plan. Um, they're, they're, they don't keep it a secret. <laughs> it's like, we know what's coming. 
so what do we do to prepare? And, you know, vice versa. They know what we do and what are they doing to prepare for us? So appreciate it um, and hope to have you on again very soon. Cheers. Thanks for having me. See you again. Jordan Zacharin is back one-on-one with Jordan Zacharin. He is the media producer for A More Perfect Union. Uh, And of course, he's the founder of the Progressives Everywhere newsletter that spotlights progressive candidates, campaigns, and causes. Jordan is based in New York, and the two of us are just going to chat about our likely new mayor, uh, Eric Adams. We Most New Yorkers learned this morning that... um, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Eric Adams, former NYPD captain, uh, is most likely going to be mayor of New York City. So I, you know, my immediate thoughts on this whole thing, looking at the analysis of all of the rank choice outcomes for the most part, um, at least citywide and borough-wide, I heard someone say this when rank choice voting first passed and somebody who's progressive saying, be careful. Mm-hmm. Because this is not an open primary state or city. And so what's likely to happen is it's going to give uh, create a scenario in which machines are going to be able to boost their candidates and do behind the scenes horse trading. And that could be progressive machines or it could be, you know, uh, old fashioned Democratic machines. But matching it with matching funds. Uh, what is interesting is you see like the at least one thing is good. The billionaires didn't win out. Right. Cause they, cause they couldn't just like buy the election, but the first round matched in every single race that I looked at who ended up being the winner. So mm-hmm. are we like not getting ring choice fully? Is it not, it does, it does seem to work under some circumstances like in May, Maine with open primaries, but not in New York where, you know, the democratic machine can still operate. You know, I thought of the thing I thought about, well, first of all, mayoral election, uh, Eric Adams, who's going to be the weirdest mayor we've had in a very long time. Uh, he won by one point really? right now. Well, really? he, he's a, I'm not, not good weird, but he's a weirdo. Um, Rudy Giuliani is pretty freaking weird. Rudy is really Lazio, weird. Hey, <laughs> hang on. Hang on. Sorry, this is a story. I should, now I can tell because right. going. I followed Mayor de Blasio around for a day. It was a really interesting day, I should say. Sure. Um, but when we had lunch... This is what I was reporting. He was eating his spanakopita with a knife upside down the whole entire time. That was weird to me. Right. Mayor de Blasio is a goofball. Rudy Giuliani is an insane person. Okay. Eric Adams okay. is a weird weirdo. He speaks in a third person. He brought people on a tour of his son's apartment that he swore was his. He's, he's, he's strange. He's not a good person. I'm not excited for him to be mayor. He's a, he's a weirdo. Um, I'll say that. So there's, diff- there's different, you know, different uh, levels. So I think that, I mean, he won by one point, ranked choice. Yeah. So we nearly, ranked choice nearly did bail us out. Um, you came very close. With and I think- Catherine Garcia. <laughs> right, not great. But I do think that like, reason Eric Adams won a machine, like you mentioned, but B, I don't think it's so much the problem of ranked choice or anything like that. I think what it is, is that every progressive candidate or so-called progressive or people, someone that was like to his left uh, blew up. I think that it's, for the most part, I think that, Andrew Yang got all the attention and criticism and allowed Eric Adams to sort of slide under the radar for a long time. I mean, Andrew right. Yang just totally blew up. And I think that had it not been for, I think, you know, Adams is a stronger candidate in the sense that he's, you know, been in New York forever and that he's, he had a machine behind him. But I think that like a lot of things, you know, he was the one who was like, yeah, Curtis Mayfield, I loved the concert where he got paralyzed and died. I mean, that's, that's weird. Um, did you hear that? Were you on the road during that time? I don't even know what that means. All right. So someone, uh, side point, Eric Adams, this is another reason why he's weird. Someone asked him his favorite, con- some fluff piece. What's your favorite concert you've ever been to? 
He's like, well, I was at this one uh, where lightning struck and uh, hit something and it dropped on <laughs> Curtis Mayfield's head and it paralyzed him. Uh, he soon died afterwards. But before that, it was a great show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is like the ultimate, like, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln had you enjoy the show. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's, <laughs> that's so, exactly what that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the ultimate. So, you know, I think that we almost avoided Eric Adams' mayoral ship because of ranked choice. And I think that he won... Uh, not because of any sort of machine so much is that like, look, I don't know if Scott Stringer is an actual progressive, but he was the choice of progressive lawmakers, sure. whether it's, you know, you know, quid pro quo. He supported a lot of people running in 2018. Uh, he was the working family party's choice. He was, you know, a lot of a lot of people's choices, young progressive lawmakers. He blew up. You know, he he had his uh, problems. His past came back to get him. Diane Morales, who enjoyed for a second support, um, turned out to be a total fraud. You know, if she enjoyed internet support. I anyways. don't like using the word fraud with women because fraud is a legal term. I'm just saying that. She turned Sorry. out to be not what she presented herself to be. But again, that was, I mean, I, I've, I've talked about this in the show before. We have to vet our candidate. Scott Stringer sure. turned out to be somebody who we did not expect to be either, but everybody right. knew was. Right. That's the difference. Diane Morales, it's called vetting. It's yeah. called, oh, she voted for uh, 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 Andrew Cuomo like a minute ago, and she voted for Hillary Clinton for, you were the WFP and you're supporting her? Didn't you, why didn't you do your, I, I'm, I'm sorry, right. but like, no, like yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's called. Oh, absolutely. So the, the point is that no progressive organization got behind, right. No one got behind Maya Wiley until the very, very, very end. And not that Maya Wiley was all that inspiring anyways. And so I think that Eric Adams benefited from just the total shit show around him, right? It was, it was, uh, you know, again, Yang. And then on the left, just that sort of, uh, just incompetence and, you know, late breaking support for Maya Wiley. And she, you know, if you look at it, like she and Garcia still split the vote to the point where they would have, you know, if one of them had consolidated support, it would have, they would have beaten Adams. I think the other thing is there were so many candidates in this race. And I think that's because of, uh, you know, matching funds. I think yep. it's because there's some deep pocketed people that, said, you know what, there's ranked choice. If I can get enough second and third uh, choices, maybe I can get there. If someone like Sean Donovan or all these, all these folks who stood no chance stayed in the race because they were getting mm -hmm. money and they had a chance. They felt like they had a chance of ranked choice voting considering no one's ever done it before. But I think that Eric Adams, his, his win certainly um, he won, but I, I just don't think it's some like great proof that, New Yorkers and progressives and, and people uh, desperately want a pro cop um, weirdo. I think it's you know, just a matter of like that. All these circumstances came together to help him. It's sort of a that's how all the races are, though. I mean, this is the one thing that I think like, hmm. I mean, I, I, people think that there's some sort of uh, overwhelming. No, I mean, there's very low turnout sure. uh, for every election in New York. It's extremely low turnout. And. Um, it's not like the, there's a mandate. There was never a mandate for Bill de Blasio. You had an implosion situation with Bill de Blasio's race too. Right. I mean, no one would have ever thought that he was going to be the, the mayor, you know, a few months before they thought maybe Anthony Weiner would, well, that turned out to be, <laughs> that was cute. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with Spitzer. Spitzer came back and people thought that Spitzer would be formidable against Scott Stringer and Scott Stringer annihilated right. him. Sure. Um, this is after Spitzer, you know, the fall of Spitzer. So, and, and by the way, Spitzer was still really liked. It was like a very strange dynamic with Elliot Spitzer, why he was able to run again. Like he did his own polling. So, you know, the, the, the reason I bring this up is it's not that ranked choice voting is bad. Right. It's that when you have a confluence of all these different things, low turnout elections, um, when you have matching funds, which incentivize more candidates to run and AKA their consultants are incentivizing them to run. When you have uh, different political machines 
machines, sometimes putting up two, three candidates, by the way, at a time um, to play off of each other and to protect each other. Because I think initially what was supposed to happen was someone like a Morales was supposed to offer cover for uh, Scott Stringer. <laughs> Mark he could be not as left for it, yeah. Yeah, well, he's also a white man. And, right, and how sure. does it look when, you know, you're, you're, the progressives are pushing forward a white man? Uh, but, you know, he he was definitely, I mean, on stage, probably like, there was just like, a, it was strange. There's just people in that race with no experience, mm-hmm. sounded awkward on stage. I mean, looking back at it, comparing this year to the, the de Blasio race, at least there were people running who were competent, who had a right. sense of like, you know, how to turn the lights on at City Hall. I was watching, I, mean, I don't know how you felt about this race, but I was just like, the, the city is spiraling out of control and we've got a bunch of like narcissists running. I mean, that's, I think that's why, I mean, Garcia got lifted by her New York Times endorsement, but she like was able to say, I've done things. And not that, you know, I was a huge <laughs> fan of her, you know, of her, but like compared to anyone else that was running, I guess, like, again, I mentioned Donovan, he did things under Bloomberg. I wouldn't advertise my housing uh, successes under Bloomberg if I was Sean that's Donovan, good. but that's what he's known um, for, yeah. yeah. So I think it was, it was a, it's a large field, but I think it was, a, didn't think it was a particularly distinguished field. You know, I think the the person that like people are most excited about is going to become Troller, Brad Lander. People are really excited about um, uh, on the progressive end, and I think that yeah, I don't. I just I feel also that you know no one could really go out and campaign for a long time, right? right. This was most of the debates were held on Zoom, which is a horrible form for it, mm-hmm. and most of these things were happening online. There's no people were not able to like, go door to door, shake hands. There was no like field organization till like the spring, and so I think that that just you know favors money, right? That favors machine candidates. And I think that, again, Adams won. He's going to be the mayor. It's going to be weird. Uh, probably not good in a lot of ways. But I wouldn't say it again that like, it's not just a mandate. I don't think, I wouldn't use it as like a litmus test for what, you know, what Democratic voters want throughout the cities is kind of the uh, point I'm trying to make. So um, simultaneously, we have uh, a city council now that, I mean, this is historic and, and, and huge. Um, city council is now the majority of of the members are women. Yeah. And this has been a, an agenda item because there were so few city council members that were women like four years ago. Um, so you had, you know, an organization pop up to, to push for more women to run. And, and let's be clear, not all of them are progressive, but, but, you know, the city council for the most part is, is fairly progressive. They don't do fairly progressive things. They all take for the most part, real estate money. And, and up until recently, NYPD, you know, different police union money and, and, and other questionable monies. Um, but it is definitely presumed to be more progressive than most city councils across the country. So. What do we expect city council to act like in relationship to a mayor Adams when it seems like at the local level, progressive politics is really starting to move. um, It's starting to move neighborhood by neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the city council, I mean, you know, um, Tiffany Caban won, you know, uh, know, a bunch of people nearly won a DSA endorsed, you know, it was, it was Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons really close. I mean, even, you know, moderate women that won, like Linda Lee beating, uh, you know, Jaslyn Kerr, like she's not a far right, you know, she's maybe a little more moderate, but she's not terrible. And so, you know, it depends on what the issues are. Like, will it be school? You know, I think that that's, I mean, they'll probably put up a big fight there, right? Like Eric Adams wanted to have 400 kids in a Zoom class or something. Um, and so I think there's going to be a big issue there. I think we're not going to, you know, in the same way de Blasio avoided any sort of real police reform and they weren't able to really force them into it. I can't imagine that's going to wind up taking root. Um, but I imagine it's going to be more combative than it is going to be with, uh, well, you know, it's the, de Blasio didn't really have control of the city council, but I don't right. know how much they weren't in lockstep with him. You know, Corey Johnson's not going to be the speaker anymore, which is great. 
Um, and Eric Adams, he's a vindictive person. So it'll be interesting to see like how much power he thinks he has and how much people fear him because he like will remember back to 1980, someone that like ripped him off for a dollar and he'll arrest them probably. Be interesting. Um, it's almost like we need a public advocate. Yeah. With, with, with power. Holds the mayor. Okay. No, they have power. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it depends if they want to use it. I think is the thing. Okay, so but the reality is, is that we have this situation now where the city's in major crisis. We're about to have a new controller. We're about to have a new, um, uh, you know, entirely different city council. I mean, for the most part, it's it, the, the the landscape and the priorities will undeniably shift. Um, you're going to have a speaker's race coming up for for city council speaker. Because uh, Corey Johnson, of course, is run for controller, but is not going to be controller now. And he's a city council speaker. Have a new mayor. I mean, the entire makeup of the city is shifting while the Senate is shifting and has a more lefty caucus. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the assembly is, is slowly shifting. Uh, we still have a governor who has, who's being investigated right now in multiple different places. So if we think about like where New York has been for the last eight years, it has been, everybody has been beholden to Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo's fighting and the machinations of Governor Cuomo. We have been stalled and frozen. And now coming out of this horrible crisis, there's this, there is opportunity, but it's like, everybody has to figure out where their footing is. Right. Like, what are the dynamics? How do we do this? How are we gonna, I mean, does Governor Cuomo have the ability to continue to, to, to control New York City the way he has? Where do you see us going? Well, you know, I think the basic thing is gonna be housing, right? The, the oh, what you call it? The eviction, the eviction moratorium is gonna end come the fall. Right. And, right. you know, I think that in a way that I'm grateful that Andrew Yang didn't want that because he had so many just big corporate and, uh, you know, real estate people behind him. I don't think Adams is some angel and is going to build all public affordable housing. But I think that, you know, he also did win because he got a lot of working class voters, the middle class voters in deep in the boroughs. And I think that that makes him if in any way, if he ever feels like he owes anyone anything, that hopefully is, is part of it. You know, hopefully, you know, between that and the city council, that is going to be much less friendly to developers, hopefully. I think that's going to be the big thing to watch because look, police reform obviously is a huge, huge deal. I don't know how much is going to happen with, I mean, he, to be fair, Adams was about police reform, at least pretended to be throughout much of his career. So there may be some like, you know, he's not like a, he's not Curtis Silva who's running around, you know, uh, with, with a big gun, you know, saying that everyone should go to jail. So maybe there'll be some modest reform there, but I think it's going to be all about development. I think it's going to be all about trying to, you know, make sure that there is real affordable housing. I mean, de Blasio, he was, you know, he, he talked a big game about that. I think to some degree he was hamstrung by all the deals reached under uh, Bloomberg, you know, and I think the fact yep. that like the city council, you know, Corey Johnson certainly was no, no opponent of, of developers. And I think that he was hamstrung a lot of ways. I mean, de Blasio screwed up plenty on his own, especially when it comes to police stuff. Yeah. But I do think he was uh, hamstrung a little bit when it comes to developers. And I think that eight years out from that, and with so many, honestly, there's gonna be a lot of opportunities. So many offices, office buildings are losing tenants. So many right. these developers people who own the buildings are in major debt or in danger of major debt. And I think that hopefully oh, the city council- Look at out, Jordan. What are you talking <laughs> well, about? Hopefully what I'm saying is <laughs> hopefully the city council can make the bailouts hurt a little bit, yeah. if anything, um, and use that advantage, you know, use that to their advantage. I think that a lot of these places where good progressives won, they were in um, places where gentrification is happening or is about to happen. And hopefully that can be, it's hard to stop gentrification fully. Um, yeah. but hopefully that can be, you know, changed as, as I'm in Manhattan and I actually have a, my, my can't, my, my, um, new council woman is the wife of Bruce Menon, the big developer. So that, Julie was, Menon, uh, yeah. yeah, so they, so they put a lot of money uh, behind her, but you know, there's, 
there's going to be pressure on everyone, I think, when it comes to, you know, housing and the eviction crisis. And I think that like the homeless, I don't want to say homeless, the unhoused like issue is going to be big. And de Blasio screwed up on how he dealt with that. And I think that, um, you know, I think like that is, I think that's going to be the real thing to watch. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because they're not going to be able to get away with the same stuff that they used to for, for a whole set of reasons, you know, um, the economic crisis just, uh, you know, looking back just a couple of years ago, many of the progressives who ran this cycle for borough presidents, um, multiple seats, and mm-hmm. uh, who ran for other positions, who got progressive endorsements, were part of the rezonings. They were <laughs> actual progressives, you know, under many lines that are progressive, that rezoned their neighborhoods without the approval of, of, of community boards, which is technically against the law in New York City. And so this used to happen all the time, all the time in New York City with progressives. So the fact that now we're in a situation which no progressives are likely going to do this because people are watching and they can't get away with it with this economic crisis, simultaneously, even more moderate, I think they're going to be more moderates who just can't do that anymore. You can't just rezone your neighborhood and suddenly, uh, uh, you know, have the Lower East Side turn into a you know, Crystal City, like in two years. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's Antonio Reynoso won in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Borough President. He was a you know big progressive endorsement. Um, you know, Mark Levine won in Manhattan. Um, and hopefully that that's helpful. And so there is, I think that, you know, we're looking at housing prices, they're kind of going back and forth, but hopefully, you know, maybe the fact that the suburbs uh, continue to get more and more expensive, you know, mm-hmm. makes it possible, you know, it's going to be impossible for people to kind of leave the city in some ways. So there's going to be a lot of fighting on it. Yeah. Well, hopefully also with the state Senate, they're going to be able to to work with each other in, in some other ways. Yeah. And hopefully all the people like, who left for the Hamptons and Miami and all those places when they try to come back, like they have some like mark on their passport, you know, on their, on their applications. <laughs> they, pay a, they have to pay like a, they have like a tax. Oh my God. You, you, you want to tax rich people? No, sorry. That was, that was stupid. That Jordan. Was, no, sorry. sorry. <laughs> you can't say those things Please out delete loud. That. I don't want, I don't want that to be associated with me. <laughs> don't chance to reach rich people. <laughs> oh man, Jordan Zachary, what are you working on right now? What's what's up at uh, a more perfect union? Oh, we got some big stuff going on. Actually, uh, we are working on. Well, first, I'm going to take down Elon Musk. That's like my first goal. Um, no big deal. Wait, there. you taking him down before he gets to space? While he's launching to space, or when he's in space? Or when he comes back? Good flight. No, um, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, no. Best lightning firework storm ever. <laughs> we're working on some stories about him and the, all the racism happening at the, the Tesla factories. And that's uh, it's a big thing coming up soon. Also, there's a big strike that happened. Uh, that's still ongoing. We have a video coming out today about it, about Frito-Lay in Kansas, Topeka, Kansas. Uh, we, they're making people work seven days a week, 12 hours a day, giving often them 20 cent raises over the last like decade or so. And it's absolutely brutal. And we have a video coming out on that. And this is in a place where there's warehouses for Amazon and Target that actually pay people better. Like right. it's worse than Amazon warehouses. That's how bad it is. The fact that chips, so yeah, chips, yeah. chips. America's gonna have the chips. We have to have our potato yeah. chips. If you saw Biden's thing, you know, prices went down like six cents. So that's big. Uh, you saw his big Fourth of July post. Um, we got something on that coming up. We got dollar store stuff coming up. There's a you know they're trying to expand. There's thirty thousand dollar stores in the United States. It's I believe that. Yes, four point <laughs> five times more targets and Walmart's combined. Um, and so we're working on that. We've got a lot, we've got a lot of stuff in the hopper and of course, voting rights. That is my personal passion. And, um, you know, we can't make them pass it, but we can make it painful for them to not pass it. So that's, that's, that's our big thing. Even just the compromise of the people act as a start, because I think when we saw the Supreme court, what happened last week, there's, 
there's no way around it. And, you know, uh, White House press secretary said that Biden's very, very focused on racial equity. He's very focused on racial equity. And um, but if he doesn't push his caucus to pass the For the People Act, he's going to be remembered as the Jim Crow president. You know, there's no there's no way around it. You know, you can you can make all the executive orders you want. But if you have the power to pass these things and you don't, you're just as bad as people that that pass voter suppression. So that is a big thing to watch. And in Texas, starting tomorrow, um, I'm not sure when this is broadcasting, but starting on Thursday, special session where they're going to look to pass the big voter suppression law that Democrats walk out on to stop. And so that will make it even more urgent. So I would watch what's happening out in Texas as they try to do that and try to uh, ruin bail reform. They're going to make it even worse somehow, which is impressive to be even worse in Texas jails. And uh, so there's a lot going on in state governments that are still going on. Um, I think that we need to start a countdown clock for people to understand that we are going to lose the Senate and we have impossible Congress. And this is how many days we have to pass yeah. things. So Joe Biden, like, be the president. That- you know, one thing that one, one thing that struck me is a few weeks ago, I spoke and had in my newsletter, spoke with Juan Mendez, who's one of the uh, Senate, state senators in Arizona. Great guy. And I used to organize with him when I was a really? kid. Yeah, awesome. seriously, when he said his name, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know him personally. Like we had a, we get some good conversations. 19, yeah. But yeah, he was saying to me, he thought, he thought that, and I read this further being backed up, that Republicans in Arizona passed all this stuff, the ridiculous flat taxes, they call it, they just enabled taxes for um, you know rich to go down and got rid of the big ballot initiative that raised taxes on the rich to uh, fund education. That and voter suppression things they passed and everything else. They said they did it because they don't, they're not sure they're going to be in power going forward. You know, the, de- they came, the Democrats very, came very close to over, you know, to winning the state Senate. They lost by one seat. Uh, even with maybe some gerrymandering, they're going to you know, put up a really good fight in 2022. And Republicans were like, we better get this done now. You know, Doug Busey has been promising it for a while. And I wish that Democrats in the U.S. Senate had that same thought. It's almost like they don't understand or care about yeah. how this works. Work on a, work on a big project on what the voter suppression rules and gerrymandering will actually do. Because I think if there's anything that Democrats in the Senate understand, it's trying to keep their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably more lucrative for them to be in the minority than it is to be in the majority at some point. Um, and but getting rid I of the filibuster. I, I honestly think, and, and, and we can talk about this another day, I think this is exactly where Schumer, I, I don't think Schumer doesn't want to be the majority leader. I really, right. I, I think he understands the dynamic of how Democrats, yes, there's more money in it, and it's probably better for Joe Biden to have a Senate that's not in power. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Chuck Schumer wants to be in power. Sure. I can't see it otherwise. Oh, yeah. Just I just like, don't know that yeah. all of, uh, every member of his caucus thinks that getting rid of the filibuster would be good for them uh, in terms of their future as lobbyists and uh, their financial uh, contributions. You know, but I it's think almost that, like Chuck Schumer has power over them. That's the thing. You know, it, it was it. Mendez also said Sinema is not going to listen to any protester or activist. She doesn't care about public pressure. Probably makes her feel better. Makes her feel oh, yeah. good. It excites her. Uh, yeah, she's, she's beyond. So it's got to be, he said, it's got to be from Biden. It's got to be from Schumer. I know Biden's meeting with civil rights leaders on Thursday, but unless they tell him to you know, put a charge into people and he listens, you know, placating mm-hmm. people is not going to be enough. It's all of these things. We should be protesting Senator yes, Schumer because absolutely. he's feeling the pain. He's, you know, since when does just Senator Schumer go and sing I love New York on the streets of New York at like an ice cream <laughs> shop or wherever yeah. the hell he was? Yeah. So so people in Park Slope, do your part. Yes. Go to Senator Schumer's house, uh, yes. bug him. And it's, you know, there are lots of protests happening in West Virginia and Arizona. There's veterans groups in West Virginia. There's, yeah. you know, lots of, you know, the African-American population is not huge in West Virginia, 
but it's 30% of the Democratic Party. Manchin's not going to win without them. Exactly. And I think that needs to be very clear because, you know, Manchin wants to keep his power. I don't know what Cinema's what her deal is, but uh, Manchin, I think he's probably more responsive and likely to flip than Cinema. Interesting. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Here we go. Manchin All right, Jordan, let's talk about this next time. Guy. All right. I love this. Jordan Zacharin, go check out More Perfect Union. Doing great work. The Lord's work. <laughs> following all these states and things. Seriously, I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, what? Do you read like a newsletter in every single state every single day? But I mean, it's <laughs> well, you know, it's um, I'm spread very thin, but you know, I'm glad to be here. And uh, at least in New York, we can probably let's try to make some better things happen in New York this year. Yes, I think we can do all it. Right. All right, all right, take care, Jordan. You too. Okay, guys. Uh, you might be able to tell that I'm a little low energy because it is 7 p.m. where I am and it is not 7 p.m. where Jordan and everybody else is, uh, including Luke. And I am dealing with still jet lag because this is the rule that I've learned. The rule that I've learned is that if you, okay, I think I got this right. Jet lag works this way. You, for every hour difference on the flight, is how many days it'll take for you to get over your jet lag. And I have not made it yet. And it hit me hard yesterday because um, even though I took my CBD, I woke up and for three hours, I was just watching the sunrise, which is great because it was really early in the morning and lovely, but I had to take my CBD and the CBD did help. Of course, I'm talking about Sunset Lake CBD. Sunset Lake CBD is the CBD that has changed my life. Uh, it's a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has all types of products, salves, gummies, tinctures, coffee, and they all help with stress, aches and pains and sleep deprivation. I was originally a dairy farm in Vermont. It was the Ben and Jerry's dairy farm and they switched it over. They diversified, now grow premium hemp Premium hemp. You can also smoke the hemp, which is fun. Um, helps my migraines, which I have not had in the last few weeks. I got to say, there's something to be said about fresh air. Uh, they are a great company. Their employees own the majority of their company. They pay a $15 minimum wage and they invest and support independent media like our show, like The Majority Report and The David Pakman Show. I love the tincture, as I mentioned. It travels well. Uh, you can also do the dog biscuits if you're into eating dog biscuits as a human. I'm kidding. They have fudge. They've got all sorts of products. Go check them out. And with that, if you go on their website at sunsetlakecbd.com and you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, you will get 20% off of your entire order. When you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, you get 20% off of your entire order. Pretty exciting. So go check out sunsetlakecbd.com. All right, guys, we are back with our amazing panel. We have Natalie Sharon again. Uh, she's back. She's a writer and she does amazing research. Uh, she focuses on history, health, and politics. You've seen her in The Nation, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, Slate Jacobin, Daily Beast, da 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 uh, She was formerly the head of research for Adam Ruins Everything. She's super smart. She's got her facts ready to go. <laughs> and it's true. We know this. And Napoleon DeLegend is an Afrobeat hip hop artist. We love him. He's part of our former uh, reoccurring panel as well. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate you. Happy to be here. 
okay, I wish we were talking about better things, but you know, we just have another climate disaster. Apocalyptic scenes have, uh, we've all seen on the internet as the ocean is on fire in the Gulf of Mexico uh, after an underwater pipeline burns. Let's just play this clip so everybody can see it in case, in case you've missed it, you've been hiding. Okay, so obviously something like this is jarring and has made the rounds on the internet, but it has also created another opportunity for everybody to discuss climate action and climate change and, you know, Republicans, of course, in denial and pointing at uh, centrist Democrats for being hypocrites and the progressives just saying their heads against the wall and, you know, basically plotting on our demise. Um, Jackie Fielder has criticized Gavin Newsom uh, because Gavin Newsom uh, tweeted out a little bit earlier uh, this week that the ocean is literally on fire, but yeah, sure, we can't afford climate change. And Jackie Fielder said, you signed literally 1,709 oil and gas permits. So at what point are we... um, Are we going to move past this? Like, Like, I know we talk about climate all the time, but there is a lot of truth to this. I mean, there is, there's uh, the hypocrisy at the executive level, level of so many different states, um, at the Senate level, of course. You know, how can we move past this? Where, where is it that a, a Democrat, a centrist Democrat, or whatever you want to call it, because Gavin Newsom got the endorsements of many progressive organizations as well, where do we move them? How are we able to move them on things that are just so catastrophic? At this point, um, Nepal, I'm going to start with you because I feel like in in Europe there's more, especially in Germany, um, there's a little bit more space there. Well, uh, overall in Europe, they, there's a general consensus and like acceptance of the fact that climate change is happening, and you you see a lot of things where a lot of awareness you see on ads or different things where people are doing certain things and talk about the earth and, and, and climate change and things like that, that when I was in America, I wasn't really seeing. And it's, um, I think it comes down to the, to, to the, to the realization, like uh, either we have to put the fossil fuel companies out of business or force them to like drastically change their business and who has the courage to do it. I don't know if centrist Democrats are ever going to be on board because I, I mean, I take it that's where they get their their money from. And 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 I think that's the deep problem that in that, this issue that that a lot of people don't want to talk about or, or they don't want to directly tackle the fact that there's a small group of people getting rich and we're facing everybody in the planet is facing the consequences of it. OK, I, I you know, and I understand this because obviously we've been talking about this and I think I'm just sick of having the same conversation over and over as a host. I'm just like, there's another climate thing. I'm asking the same questions over and over it's on repeat, but I really do ask like, does, how do we change a strategy? Because as wonderful as some of these new organizations are out there, the tactics are not working. 
They're just not working. We have the Senate. We have Congress. We supposedly have this president who's, you know, acknowledging climate change, getting back. I, I, I get like a slow just it's who's reestablishing our, our positioning you know, globally when it comes to acknowledging climate change, but something is not working. And I don't know what the tact is. It's, it's not showing up in the streets. So Natalie, I mean, what do we, what do we have to do? Is it, is sunrise not doing enough? Is justice Democrats not doing enough? Is it just electoral? Like, where are we missing it? You have sinkholes in Florida and New York, you have buildings being <laughs> collapsing. I mean, what else does it take? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And we've certainly gotten beyond the point where, you know, all we have to do is come up with a really good argument that will convince a centrist Democrat. And to your point, I think that the answer is sunrise movement and justice Democrats, the squad, uh, everyone that we agree with uh, through the labor movement, they have to build worker power so that we can challenge the fundamental power structure uh, that people are have a vested interest in that makes them want, not want to confront climate change, right? Like this goes way beyond people getting donations from a few fossil fuel executives. We're talking about, you know, we have to rejigger how the economy is organized and the people that it benefits. And so I think that building worker power to be able to take that on is the path forward as I see it. And of course, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time. We have a few years. So I think that the climate change movement and the labor movement really have to get on the same page. And, you know, hearteningly, I see that happening in a few quarters. So I hope that continues. Yeah, there's I mean, the infrastructure bill, which we're going to move to in a second. It was a great opportunity for us to have uh, that that kind of alignment, but simultaneously, just from the international perspective, being international right now, um, what is it going to take for international leaders who are are many different countries are facing the consequences of catastrophic um, decisions made in our country and and others as well? Not you know, it's not just us. What is it going to take for them to put pressure on Joe Biden to you know? enough, like stop letting the rednecks doing the, excuse my language, <laughs> calling people rednecks, but like the people's, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want to become something, but the rednecks at the Walmart, you know, singing God bless America <laughs> are literally controlling the, the climate disaster right now. Like they're holding the whole world up right now. I mean, this is going to need to be, it needs to, there needs to be more aggressive diplomacy, I guess, or aggressive action. Like somebody needs to hit, like that finally hit the emergency button. Like we need like some Green New Deal, planetary Green New Deal, whatever, American Green New Deal. But um, it's, um, it. I, I don't, I, I think the, the, the pressure has to be, has to be put, like you said, internationally also as well, because it is a global problem. And whatever happens in France or whatever happens in Italy, if America stick, keeps uh, sticking to the same thing, it's, we're still heading towards a disaster real, real, real fast. Um, as far as strategy, I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm not sure what's the best strategy that they could take, but, um, like the, the emergency button has to be pushed and videos like this going around, I, I, I don't know how it doesn't scare everybody. I don't know how it doesn't like make people stop in their tracks and you're like, look, we're doing something very wrong here. You know what I'm saying? 
Like well, I just I, mean, I still don't think Americans get it. Like like I'm 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 taking Americans in a general sense. I just don't think they really get it. They're just like just going through living their life and not realizing like that this is real, this is serious because they've been propagandized to not believe it and to think that it's it's not a great deal. And there's other people who are just running, they think apocalypse is about to happen anyway. So it it, it falls into what they they believe in anyway. The apocalyptic people. Um no, but I mean, it does, it does tie, all of this stuff is connected to pl- diplomatically. And so if, if our entire, uh, you know, foreign policy is rooted in some sort of geopolitical game over oil and gas, it is connected. And if, if, if the power, if, if everything, for instance, I'm in Greece right now, and, you know, the fact that the EU is doing absolutely nothing, just an example, I'm like staring at Turkey outside of my window. I can see Turkey from my window as I speak, right? I could flip the camera and you could see it. Um, and Turkey is ready to exercise natural gas drilling, which is against international law in these waters, which could affect EU nations. And the EU is just like sitting there silently. I mean, here's a perfect example of how diplomacy is failing. That is a climate issue. That's a geopolitical issue. I mean, all these things are, what do you think? Well, there's this, 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 this turf war with Russia is over oil and gas, but ultimately, it is what frames everything. Does I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, does it not frame everything for the neoliberal class that doesn't want to separate themselves from oil and gas because there's this other aspect, which is America first. Natalie? Yeah, I mean, I think that climate change isn't typically thought of as, uh, uh, I mean, it's thought of as an international issue insofar as we all live on the planet, but uh, you know, beyond things like the Paris Agreement, which I do think was important. And obviously there's a pretty shameful partisan side of that too. Uh, it's not thought of as something global in terms of, you know, transcending our conception of the nation state in many ways. Uh, and I think that it really does highlight not only that it's important to have an international lens, but that it's important to think about oppression internationally, Um, you know, there's a reason that a hundred years ago uh, and more leftists were saying workers of the world unite, right? Like they they had a very international uh, labor analysis. And I think that we need that. I think that we need to understand better what workers in the United States have in common with workers in Turkey, what they have in common with workers in Germany and in every other country, and that they have a lot more in common in a lot of ways, or they should, uh, than they have with the, you know, executives in the United States and other powerful countries who, you know, use the like Walmart choppers that you're talking about for their bidding, use them to their ends. They're convenient because they help them get a governing majority. Um, you know, those people aren't, aren't, aren't actually powering this and pushing it forward. It's, you know, the, the richest, people, the people who own capital, and they're the ones that need to be confronted in a global context. But even from a geopolitical perspective, you know, workers in Turkey are not able to apply the same pressure that workers in Germany are and workers in France are and workers in the U.S. are, um, you know, so from a geopolitical perspective. So if if somebody like a, um, you know, there's there's obviously coordination, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an overlap between the Foreign Services Committee and who, for instance, who sits in these key positions and who takes the most oil and gas money from, you know, U.S. companies. Um, and that's purposeful for a lot of reasons. Um, Napoleon, 
I mean, do, do you think that people are looking at climate from a geopolitical perspective on this side of the pond? Meaning the side of the pond that I'm on with you. Oh, um, okay. that's a good question. Um, I think they are a, a lot more than Americans because they're uh, the, the I, I listen to to a few shows like like French shows where they, they uh, interview it you know, the geological experts and all, all types of scientists and, and uh, people in politics. And mm -hmm. what I didn't perceive being in America was how much actually Americans like influence like countries like France and the government, like, and, and because some, some of the guests in that shows were saying how some of the officials like in the French government or, or, or in, in certain institutions in France are actually working for the Americans or they're not saying it outright, but they're suspecting that like, why are they not looking out for our interests? It seemed like it's, it's very, they're looking at the lens from America's perspective as in they've been infiltrated talking to about them kind of like as if they were moles. Like I'm hearing this from like, you know, like very like, you know, people in positions, people that were in, in, in the administration in France and things like that. So it, I don't know. I, I think it has to do with the, the American hegemony and, and the whole neoliberal agenda and having more of a of a control than, than we could, I think, perceive just from from the from the outside looking in. Or a, or a um, multinational corporation agenda versus, you know, Russian state agenda, which is another Exactly. And, and to add to that, it's just like Facebook, Amazon and companies like that, which are so mm -hmm. powerful, even outside of America. But they're American companies. And mm -hmm. a lot of these companies are backed up by the state of the America, the Department of State and things like that. And 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 like that, that, that's an issue that they talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, like why? Why are we letting people in France have uh, let Facebook get our information, do things like that. But, and, and I, it seems like I'm going outside of climate, but I'm not because we're mm -hmm. just talking about foreign policy and, and, and ge geopolitical strategies and things like that. And that has to do with American being allowed to run business as usual and not um, look for climate change solutions or things to change the, the status quo and, and getting the same people rich. Right. And I mean, these are multinational corporations that have interests in multiple countries and, 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 and obviously tax incentives in some countries versus other countries. But, you know, they there's definitely like like the spread of misinformation, you know, Facebook in some countries spreads information more than other countries because of standards, because of culture, because of a lot of different, you know, dynamics, um, which I think affects, you know, climate awareness as well. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because back to the States, because uh, Mehdi Hassan, who has a show on MSNBC, uh, he, he, <laughs> he thinks that centrist Democrats um, and Joe Biden specifically is not using the bully pulpit enough to uh, take on the Republican Party. Shocker. But, you know, fair enough. I'm glad he's saying this on MSNBC. Let's play this clip. So you've got this For the People Act, right? You couldn't get Manchin on board. Then you get Manchin on board with a compromise, which, OK, fine. Stacey Abrams says it's great. Let's do it. Then Mitch McConnell and all the Republicans turn around and say, oh, it's a Stacey Abrams bill. We can't we can't touch that. But even if you got rid of the filibuster, as Ellie's pointed out, and you pass this thing, the Roberts court's sitting there waiting in the wings like <laughs> absolutely yeah. hacking to death. It's like, what are we doing here? Indeed. Let me just address one quick point between you and Ellie a moment ago, and I, I get both sides of the argument. I think Ellie's right uh, that they can't win without uh, changing these rules. You're right that they're more competitive than people think. But look, the key fact is this. 
It's been 31 years since a Republican president won the White House with the popular vote at the first attempt, right? That is a long time. They know that. They're not stupid. They cannot win the White House. Forget Congress, uh, you know, the House, which all sorts of gerrymandering, the Senate, which has all sorts of disproportionality. They know they can't win the the top office uh, very easily. To come back to your point about Manchin and the Senate, I mean, number one, the idea that they're going to reject a compromise because Stacey Abrams' name is on it comes back to Ellie's point. Could they just stop being racist for even four days, let alone four right. years. Uh, number two, when is Joe Manchin going to have his awakening? Maria Theresa mentioned. I don't know. I mean, I, I've said Joe Manchin's name more times in 2021 than maybe I've said my two kids and my wife's name. I am, like Bernie Sanders, I'm fed up of saying Joe Manchin's name and Kirsten Sinema's name. But I just don't understand when they will get it, what it will take for them to get it. We were told that when they try and do a deal, when they bring something bipartisan and it fails, they will see the light. Well, we saw it on S1 where Manchin got on board with a reasonable compromise. I am no fan of Joe Manchin, but the stuff he offered was reasonable. It was a building block for something better than nothing. And yet he couldn't get a single Republican on board. Even his John Lewis bill that he says is the more important bill than the For the People Act, he has one Republican on board, Lisa Murkowski, as far as I can see. So I don't know when they're going to have their realization. I think the point is that they're never going to have their realization because it's never been about a good good faith argument on their part. Forget the Republicans in good faith. I've mentioned this on the show before. Kirsten Sinema in 2010. There's a video, you know, gone viral online. She's saying in 2010, we must forget about the false option of 60. We must use budget reconciliation for good as Republicans did. Natalie, why even put forward this bill? If you know you're not going to get enough Republicans at all, what's what's the point? Is it to drag it out? I mean, I don't know. They're going to end up having to choose one side or the other at some point. It's why not just instead of dragging it out, you know very well creating an alternate bill, a bipartisan bill, and you know very well you're going to get a certain number of votes. And shocker, you didn't get them. What is the point of even going through this dog and pony show? Yeah, I mean, I agree that Joe Biden should definitely be using the bully pulpit more. Uh, I think that you know you could say, you could make that case for the way that he's going to work with Republicans or Democrats. This is setting aside the what I think is misplaced fetishism of bipartisanship in the first place, which is, you know, what Joe Biden ran on. So he he obviously values that a lot of voters value that or at least, you know, the kumbaya sentiments that it nussles within them. Uh, I I think that if he used the bully pulpit more, I think that it could at least stir up public pressure the way that we've seen a few times in the past few years, Uh, you know, Obviously, Trump didn't use the bully pulpit when the ACA was about to be repealed, but Democratic lawmakers sure as hell did. And I think that they were able to stir up enough public pressure, get people to scream bloody murder, and that that's what pushed that back. There's not a lot of margin for that, obviously. You know, the margins are very, very thin. There are very few Republicans who would conceivably work with Democrats on anything. Uh, There are, you know, probably about the same number of Democrats who would jump ship on a party line bill. Um, And I think that the only real option on the table is to drum up a lot of pressure to try to push those people in one direction or the other. And it is uh, maddening to see that that's not happening, not not only from Joe Biden, but I think that you know, other uh, other lawmakers I'd like to see using that more too, uh, raising more hell than they are. And I think it's been disappointing not to see as much of that as I would have liked to.
Well, I mean, there's been lots of reports that uh, Joe Manchin and, and Cinema are co- are offering cover to other lawmakers that, you know, if a filibuster were to go away, it would suddenly be part of, you know, whatever version of the IDC would be in, in the Senate, you know, Dem- Democrats who are suddenly siding with Republicans. But, I mean, what better way to show your bipartisanship, Napoleon, than actually getting rid of the filibuster? Because then you're going to be forced, you know, if the Senate, if the Democrats lose, or vice versa, you're forced to show, you know, you can come together on really important deals like, I don't know, infrastructure, which never used to be something that was controversial, but now is. Right. I mean, uh, you know, like Biden, I, I think he he tends to want to hide behind decorum. He uses that uh, uh, mm. to, to not do anything um, courageous or, or, or not to. And I think it's going to be to his detriment. I, I think I, th- I think like people want to see him actually like like uh, I agree with what Natalie says, like put pressure and use the bully pulpit. That's the type of energy that people want. They want something to get behind. And everybody seems to just be I mean, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm character uh, as I'm doing. A, I'm exaggerating, but like just watching idly. You know what I'm saying? Just nobody's really taking a stand and really trying to like really, really push, uh, push or whatever they believe in. Well, what frustrates me is I just feel like we're on the verge of the Republic collapsing and like, you know how they do these data models and like you kind of know the data about what's happening and you can, you can look at different countries that are on the verge of collapse and there's certain key points that, you know, factors that have to be at play. They have to hit a certain point and then this has to hit a certain point, whatever it is, you know, democracy in decline or, you know, income inequality and all. And I feel like we all know it. And yet <laughs> we're just sitting, we're having climate conversations. Is it? And I'm, I just don't understand. I'm, I, I would love to look back at this in 30 years and be like, we were right, but we're not going to be around in 30 years. And so I feel like the show is just constantly venting about how, you know, it's going to come down to what, two people in the Senate? And I don't mean Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. I mean Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. You know, is that where the pressure needs to be applied? Is that are they, is, is Chuck Schumer able to feel shame or what other, other type of pressure needs to be applied? I mean, these coalitions do come together and pressure lawmakers all the time so that they do get moved. But do we need to apply pressure to Chuck Schumer to, I don't know, control the Senate that he controls? Because I assume he still wants to be in power. Anybody, Natalie? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> Great. Sounds good. How about all those organizations that showed up at Nancy Pelosi's office? Maybe do it at Chuck Schumer's office or, you know, convince him to come to some karaoke um, event and sing New York songs. And then really it's a, it's a trap. I mean, anything That's to it. put a merit to their face at this point. I mean, at least we'll, at least we'll get the visceral uh, satisfaction of having a reaction from them because it just seems like, Nobody cares and nobody, nobody's stepping up to the plate. And like you said, this is like looking like, I don't know, like late stage capitalism, whatever word you want to throw in. But something is something is wrong and it feels like something is going down and nobody is like stepping up to the plate. I feel like the movement's also exhausted and we're not coming up with the creative ideas that we may have been coming up with a few years ago. But uh, yeah, we could totally trap Chuck Schumer. What's your best idea, Natalie? What's the best way to get to trap Chuck Schumer into shame? Uh, it really put me on the spot with that. I mean, okay, I'll come up with one real quick. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna carry around a big net like they would in a cartoon, uh, <laughs> hide in a bush, get out and throw it over him, drag him over, and make him listen to us. 
I mean, you're just, it's really very obvious. That's do that to a sitting lawmaker, just to be clear. <laughs> Listen, I'll get arrested for protesting on Capitol Hill. Why not do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that that stuff is very important and that people should be doing it. It does concern me that in light of the ocean on fire, I think the same week there were also massive prison sentences announced at the federal level for people who had protested at Standing Rock. Uh, there are a bunch of charges leveled at a protest, I, I think, for uh, a, some sort of climate change related, you know, that, sorry, off the top of my head, some sort of fossil fuel project in Massachusetts, I think. There have just been some some charges leveled. Uh, you know, we're going to need to fight back against uh, that sort of you know draconian overzealous right. sentencing too. Uh, but yeah, we all we all need to to sub in and sub out in terms of movement building. I love that sub in sub out. Now, now, okay. I feel like we're in the upside down world because like the people that are wrecking the planet, they they're rich, they're living living nicely, and the people that are trying to help and make a difference to get in jail, that they they're suffering, they get harassed mm-hmm. and humiliated, and it's like is is the problem? Like I ask myself, is the problem the politicians or the system? Because it seems like I don't know, like something has to give somewhere. Right. I, I mean, I, I obviously system, these are systemic issues that are deeply rooted and kind of manifested, you know, over time in the worst ways possible. But with that being said, Chuck Schumer is in a position of power and he's not somebody they can easily swap out overnight. It doesn't mean it's not doable, but it is, you know, he's in a position of power in which he has earned over the years. And I feel like all you have to do is um, get him on board with some sort of really popular thing, invite him to the press conference and just be like, just kidding. Cause he loves to show up at press, press conferences to take credit for really popular issues or, or, or he's also known for matchmaking. This is, I'm trying to think like, think like you're a CIA agent basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, the, I think the number one thing that anyone on the broader left can do in the short term within the next few years that could actually change the balance of power in the United States, given all the obstacles is passing the pro act. Uh, 100%. yeah, that makes, makes unions stronger. It makes it easier to organize. That's the only option I think for changing the power dynamic in the United States is a stronger, labor movement in the pro act is going to be how we get there. So Absolutely. Chuck Schumer wants to sit at that press conference and brag about it. I welcome him. Great. That sounds great. That's a, that's fine not a trap. I'd be that. <laughs> I'm thinking low hanging fruit, Natalie. You're like bringing it back <laughs> to thought. I'm like, get him on something. Cause oh my gosh, he's, I, he's so well known for these press conferences where he shows up and he's, you know, renaming, you know, a street after some hero that everybody loves or, uh, banning bath salts. That was his big crusade a few years ago. He's running around the stage, just banning bath salts. And, you know, he's never met a camera he doesn't love. Um, so just, just bring on a bunch of cameras, stage him outside of his office. We declare National Chuck Schumer Day. He shows up and then we put a net on his head. <laughs> and then we say, you, you better call Kirsten Cinema right now and say, <laughs> we are running a primary against you if you don't. No? I Somebody needs like to set up. Set up a jumbo screen in front of that Congress with that image of the of the whirlpool or that that fire oh fire God. pit whirlpool. I'll bring the cameras out. They'll have yeah. to look look at it. You know. Let's get some of these billionaires. You know how there are these new billionaires who are like love criticizing the billionaire class, and they just like go on Twitter and criticize it all day long and write op eds. How about you take some of that money and put it into shame exercises too? Just some 
some few little thoughts here. Okay. I want to um, shift gear. Sorry, I could go on this path forever and come up with different ideas, but we do have to think, um, you know, move, move forward and think uh, what's to come. And Ron DeSantis, speaking of climate change and Republicans not getting it and rich people uh, being able to get out of, you know, climate change, Florida, what better example I mean, to me, this is like as a, as a political messenger, this is a perfect space where you could move Republicans against a Republican on climate change because poll wise, at least, you know, in, in, in southern Florida, there are Republicans in southern Florida, Florida who totally believe in climate change because they see it every day. But yet still vote for DeSantis, still vote for Rubio. So we need, I don't know, there's a lot of work here to connect the dots, but uh, let's play this clip of Ron DeSantis because People think that he's going to be the one running um, against Joe Biden on the Republican ticket or the nominee. Um, Mark, what is your sense? I mean, it's it's so interesting to watch DeSantis, too, because obviously when he was first elected governor, everyone was surprised. A lot of people didn't take him seriously in the beginning. They thought, uh, you know, some of the, the things that he said were too right wing or, or not enough in the mainstream. He clearly uh, has evolved. I mean, watching him with President Biden uh, and saying thank you uh, is a very the, the way that he approached that it, a much more traditional way of doing things in a big uh, what has been historically a swing state like Florida and and seems to acknowledge that, you know, he's he's growing in ways that understand he would need a broader appeal if he actually did want uh, to make a national bid. I mean, what's your take on how DeSantis has handled himself and changed uh, in this role? And I mean, and he's got to now lead the state through, of course, this awful Surfside collapse and, and impending tropical weather. I don't know if he's changed so much, but yes, for those of us who have observed him kind of govern very much on the right wing, uh, the fact that he was uh, quite welcoming of the president and was not political at all did surprise a lot of people here. Yeah. All right. Mark Caputo, thank you very much uh, for getting up Mark early Caputo. with us this morning. We really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Caputo is a well-known Florida reporter, always giving you the, <laughs> the insider information. Um, all right. I mean, I, I say like we need to start thinking this way, but the, the reality is, is I think the media has been distracting us with Trump and Trump's reelect and who knows, he still might do it. But 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 we got to start thinking progressives, especially in a state like Florida, um, need to start thinking about what to do, right? How do we make sure we don't lose Florida? I'm not even talking about Biden. I'm talking about just taking over some of the legislature in Florida so that we don't have what has happened in the DeSantis term in the last two years um, continue. I mean, same thing in Texas and Arizona. I mean, there's multiple states like this where uh, there's an opportunity to win locally so that DeSantis doesn't get credit for these sweeping pieces of legislation. Like what is the one that he signed where uh, three people's a mob and you get arrested if you're protesting three people? What? Um, these things are all gonna go to the Supreme Court. So Natalie, uh, centrist Ron DeSantis, yeah, I mean, you know, I, something you said a, a minute ago, I think is important when you said, you know, people in South Florida vote Republican, but they do believe in climate change. I think, I mean, you know, maybe maybe at the individual voter level, who knows, but the Republican Party believes in climate change. OK, like like they're not stupid. They're not yokels. I feel like a lot of the liberals have framed it as, you know, we believe science or, you know, as if anti-climate change politics have been a triumph of ignorance. And they're not. I mean, that's been a very conscious propaganda campaign. Uh, what they're not doing is facing climate change because it would upend 
the basis of the economic system, right? Like that's what they don't want to confront. That's what they have to be pushed to confront. Uh, I think that, you know, right now they're still not going to be on the lefty or progressive side with climate change because they're going to hope for, you know, state capitalism. They want to just keep doing what they're doing and get massive housing subsidies for people who bought waterfront property, et cetera. Uh, we have different ideas about how to organize things. And, you know, I think that uh, as with all organizing, that has to be done from the ground up. Uh, you know, we have to make inroads in Florida, find the people on the ground, organize, go door to door. Um, you know, I, I don't have ties to Floridians doing that, but certainly, you know, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America and some of their allies, I hope are doing that on the groundwork because, you know, we need we need a lot of non-voters and we need a lot of Trump voters. We just need to basically reorient their anger and resentments away from critical race theory and vaccines and whatever else is being drubbed up on hot Fox News and tilt it back toward the people who are getting rich off the fact that there's a fire in the ocean. There's fire in the ocean. Buildings are collapsing. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Tornadoes are hitting. A hurricane's about to hit again in Florida. We we know what's happening. But I'm so glad you mentioned distraction because, I mean, this is, um, I think the Trump thing is a distraction. I think, you know, a lot of these issues, Republicans are so, so great at distraction. And of course, the media is so great at picking up on it. And of course, the left falls for it all the time, which we'll get to in a second. Um does it seem the same in Germany? Like when you're watching Germany, I'm, I'm, there's a reason I'm asking this because I'm not trying to model ourselves after Europe, but, but I, I, have, I have noticed a visible difference in how people respond to crisis slowly too here um, in the EU and obviously every country is different. But the, I'm, I was like shocked every time I travel, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, it's shocked out of my system, shocked out of the, the Twitter fights and the this and that. And then there's suddenly this perspective that you get just with distance and, and you know, different communication and different news. And but just the rhythm of conversation and politics, while we're so fast paced in, in, in our country um, because of the news cycle and because of the way the Republican Party is constantly shifting the goalposts and everybody else's as well. Simultaneously, we're not dealing with anything, which is, I think, kind of the theme of the show. We're not dealing with anything. So, Napoleon, like, from your perspective as an American, as somebody who um, is abroad, like, how does it appear to you? Is this a distract? Is it just one distraction after other? And then comment on DeSantis if you'd like. I mean, it, I, I just feel like, as far as uh, as the collective, it, it, it's it, like let's even let's even talk about like you know when when it came for the COVID crisis, like there yeah. was like it's more of a buy-in with people like had to understand it. It's the same thing when we talk about like climate change. People have an understanding. They know they got they, we have to come together. It's not to say that there aren't no extreme faction, factions that are really that, that politicize the thing and talk about masks, things like that. It's it's it. it I don't, I don't feel, I don't, I, I'm not going to say I'm an expert and I really, I, I'm at the pulse of what's going on there, but I, I just don't feel that, um, all that pointless infighting, like you said, there's a lot of noise. seems like there's a lot of noise in America and nothing is getting done. Like, it just feels more like it's a functioning state where, where, uh, people are actually trying to get things done when it comes to, to America. It's funny. Even when I watched that little segment, they, they're, they're, 
the uh, the argument this guy gives that DeSantis is like moving to the center is that he said thank you to Joe Biden. Like, I what know, did they expect him to do? Throw a tomato at him? Like, <laughs> like the, these guys, like we know they're politicians. They're playing a game, but when they come together in a room, they laugh and drink champagne. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like what, like it, it, it's so stupid and so pointless. But once again. Like in places like Florida, like I suspect it's a, it's a lot of the cultural issues that make people vote one way or the other. People vote with their eyes. They vote with their mm-hmm. with their feelings, like what, whatever they feel culturally uh, makes sense to them. And I think what it's going to take is to paint a different picture of society and make people buy in. Like, I'm not saying it's, 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 it's an easy thing to say, but like Natalie's saying, when we're talking about labor, when we're talking about everybody wants better conditions at their work, they want things more fair. There's more, there's a majority of people that are struggling. More, more people are, are doing worse than people doing good. So we need to speak directly to them and we're not mm-hmm. going to get everybody, but we could get a substantial amount for, for actually to have better people inside these seats of power, whether it's local or whether it's on the national level. Well, and it's interesting because Florida, just as an example, like they passed the $15 minimum wage, you know, there's a great opportunity for, and, and that's in a state that is a right to work state. So it used to be that labor, you know, really mobile. And they did. I'm not saying that they don't have, there's no labor in Florida, but um, they're, they're definitely not as powerful as they used to be. And so it used to be labor that was really pushing most of these initiatives and using them to pressure lawmakers. But when you don't have, going back to the PRO Act, why PRO Act is so important is, you know, giving the power back to laborers, they can rebuild simultaneously as more people are organizing locally and on the ground and taking over legislatures, more progressives are running so they can hold somebody like a DeSantis accountable. I mean, he's able to get away with what he's able to get away with because he's got a legislature that's completely, just completely checked out the same way he is. Um, and so organize, 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 but I say stay focused because let's throw up this Lauren Boebert thing. I have a real, I'm, I'm only bringing her up to make a point. So let's throw up this tweet by Lauren Boebert. She's a representative with the guns, remember? She's uh, from Colorado. She's the gun bar. COVID-19 mutated into communism a long time ago. This is what she tweeted this morning. Uh-huh, okay. Um, I bring this up because of course she did this to get attention. Of course she did this because she knew it would inflame the left. Of course she did this because maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene's getting more attention than she is and you know, whatever. But there's also fundraising. People don't do these things nowadays. Lawmakers don't do these things anymore unless they have, I mean, some of them are a little crazy and they just do it, but, but there's always, it's like, does it have legs? It used to be, you did a press, some sort of um, press thing to get attention and make sure that there was an article out of it. There was a segment out of it. There was a fight over it, which turned into another article, another segment. Oh, there's a fundraising opportunity. We could send some emails out of that. You know, all sorts of things you can do out of one action. And it's just so much easier now with Twitter. She could say something like that. And then it escalates and escalates and escalates. And so what, based on a previous conversation, I am just going to go, you guys can agree or disagree. We'll go around. I feel like the left is falling, including myself right now, is falling for these distractions a little bit too much and not staying focused because energy is finite. And where are we using our energy right now? So Natalie. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this on your show before. It's really hard because I do think, you know, things like 
yeah, Donald Trump tweets things to get a reaction. Marjorie Taylor Greene tweets things to get a reaction. Lauren Boebert tweets things to get a reaction. The idea is to stir people up and then do a Fox News segment about how there are different sides and get people to like reflexively be defensive of their side, et cetera. And it would be great if people just stopped reacting to these things, but it's very untenable to like what, like release a memo to millions of individuals on Twitter to not have a reaction to this, to not cover what elected officials are saying on public channels. Like you can't not react to these things. It's it's driven by individuals. And Social media makes this stuff a thousand times worse. Uh, And I feel like it's just a problem we are stuck with. There is no way out of that. So, you know, you have to figure out how to counter it because I think that don't, don't react to X is it's, it's not possible. Not going to happen. This reminds me of those DCCC emails, which we still get, which are like breaking news, you know, like emergency. But what I'm, I'm specifically talking about, okay, maybe I should, obviously the internet's going to internet, but there are organizations that we give money to. And I open up my emails now and some of the more progressive ones are are, are Marjorie Taylor Greene declares war on AOC. And it's like, oh my God, it's the new version of a DCCC email. That's what I'm feeling. And I don't know how we get past it. I just, it's just, it worries me personally as we go into midterms that this is kind of where the conversation is steering. Is this AOC versus Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert versus whoever she's tar- I don't know what the dynamics are with the squad and like, like but you know, this isn't high school. Yeah, but like, I think it's kind of like the entertainment industry. It's, I see it all the time and trolling works. And, and, and then it's like, you want to tell people to be smarter than that, but you yourself have a personal reaction and, and you can't stop the, 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 the mob, the masses from having a reaction to these things. And I think I tweeted something about it like a few weeks ago about like that we stuck in the conundrum, how, how to not be reactionary to the reactionaries. You know what I'm saying? And it's like it's, it, it's a tough it's a tough game to break because it's it works. It just mm-hmm. works. And and on top of that, you're dealing with algorithms, you're dealing with uh, social media companies that um, they make their money and they get their reach and attention off beefs and conflicts and and and, and infighting. We see I, all I see on Twitter is infighting now. It's like, oh, I know <laughs> it, it's not information. It, it's all I see. And I'm just like, I get it. I, it, it. It tires me out because I'm like, who cares? Like, this doesn't even matter. And it, like we're making like. Um, it, it just it feels like WWF, like every yeah. time, even when we're talking about politics now, it's like it seeped in into politics. And um, I honestly, I, I just want to tell people to be smarter than that and, and mm-hmm. you know, just stay focused, stay on message. And that that's how we're going to win. Like this is just straight distractions. Let's call it distraction for what it is. And let's realize that that is just a waste of time. There's just the, like an ego, like little exercise that you're doing. It's it's not moving the ball forward, and we we got to keep people focused. It's difficult. Yeah. If um, large left media networks don't respond to troll media networks, the trolls don't continue to grow, and then you know that's just we don't talk about it on our show anymore. <laughs> I'll just say that. But but every time I open up Twitter, I woke up this morning and I was just like, oh cool, three of my friends are trending, and one person I used to be friends with is trending because they're all fighting with each other. But you know, of course, those beefs are money, and those segments are segments that we could be discussing. You know, how to pressure Joe Manchin, how to trap Ch- Chuck Schumer. Like, let's come up with the ideas. <laughs> 
Listen, let's build we'll a stronger do the crazy army. Ideas. Like, they do the beef. I'm not. It's 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 high school. Yeah. How can we, how could, how can we coordinate something? Let's coordinate together. Everybody has such like we, we all have influence and like yeah. we could coordinate and, and use our energy for better things. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. but like, the, 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 do, you, do you think um, like big media covers like tweets like this? Uh, the Lauren Boebert one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. All the time. I mean, they make all their money off of it. If they're covering tweets like this, how could, how could we, you know what I'm saying? How could, how, it's, it's going to be hard to ignore, you well, know what I mean? They'll definitely cover it if like AOC responds. And so from my perspective, I'm just like the progressives are, we feedback and then they feed off of us, but they will, I mean, it doesn't mean they're going to go away, but obviously January 6th happened. It didn't mean that like QAnon doesn't live in their own little universe and not responding, but, but you know, Trump feeds off of the fights and Trump's gone now and these people feed off the fights, but they're not as strong as Trump. Yeah. At one point when you're talking about like Germany, for example, like, I don't feel like politics is entertainment over here. It might be, yeah. but I'm, I'm not, I'm not all the way into it, obviously, but it's definitely entertainment in America. And that, yeah. that's a problem. Yeah. Well, you know, our former president was a reality show star. So, well, so it'd be great. I mean, there's plenty of places that works. Um, Natalie, sure. Final thoughts. Demise of the Republic. How many days do you think we have left? Uh, I, you know, I've, I've got some fun summer plans. So let's hope that there are at least 45 or 50. <laughs> I can't uh, wait to hear. The ocean should not be on fire. Uh, we got to fix this. Yes. Sounds great. Napoleon. Oh, uh, yeah. The more music. The working on more music. I have a, you I, think we'll still have a Republic when I get back from Greece? That's my question. I hope Let's start so. taking bets. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Also, screw capitalism that I can't have a vacation while I'm here. <laughs> I love you guys, but <laughs> the show dies if we don't air it. That's how this works. The algorithm just goes... So we got to continue. Um, appreciate you, everything you do. Thanks, Napoleon. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you, Brad, producer Brad, who's been uh, dealing with my tech issues all day. Thank you to everybody for listening, uh, for watching. And if you are not already, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You, just, you get just as much content as you did before. We moved to this new format, Wednesday nights and Friday nights, uh, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And Fridays are Femme Fridays still. So there you go. So you just get more Femme. You get double the Femme. That's how this works. All right. Thank you to everybody. Stay in solidarity. And we will see you on Friday. The No Mickey Show. We clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating. Give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites. Oligarchs stay fed. Deep state. Faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism. Homophobia. Sexism. Religion. In this melting pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue, talking heads left is best. The saga continues, continues. The No Miki Show.